Hello, and welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. You are listening to Close Reads. As always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. And I forgot to say that I'm David Kern, so I'm David Kern. Angelina, Tim, how's it going? It's going good. David, it's going splendidly. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, we are here to to discuss books, uh, books and more books. Um, and it is a new year, which means it's a new book. And yes. we thought when we're kicking off the new year, why not kick off the new year with something kind of fun? You know, it's winter. It's the snow on the ground in a lot of places. For many of our listeners, it's like zero degrees. The and... fog creates a mysterious air in some of the cities that we're living in (laughs) there is that indeed uh and also it might just be fun to read something fun at this time of year uh something a little lighter um as the the as we enter those months of the school year when you know you are uh, just pushing through sometimes and it's not always the easiest time to be a teacher uh especially as we hit you know february here in a couple weeks so today is january 13th friday wait it's the friday the 13th guys no oh it is we're we're starting stuff to happen on the show now (laughs) we're starting a mystery story on friday the 13th and we're sitting here under a ladder what was i thinking (laughs) we that well i mean that's that's true whether it's friday the 13th or not yeah uh uh, (laughs) But we did not plan that. That works out great. But that means that this is a show for... No, uh, you have to act like we planned it. This was marketing brilliance. I mean, come on. <laughs> consider what this book's about. Well, <laughs> well, this episode... Excuse me. This episode is going to air Monday, uh, January 16th. Um, and so this is... We'll say this is the podcast for the week of the 16th. But we're here to talk about Dorothy Sayers' uh, Murder Must Advertise, one of her more famous Lord Peter Whimsy mysteries. Um before I'm so excited about this by the way guys yeah I why think... are you so excited about it angelina tell us oh i just i love dorothy sayers i love lord peter whimsy and uh I, i've been really wanting to reread this so it, it, this is great and i'm um, i'm also really excited because i i you know we just go through this just like what david's saying you know you can't always be reading these heavy heavy books um and the great thing about Dorothy Sayers or a PG Woodhouse or somebody like that is that they show us that our only options are not, you know, Plato or Drivel, right? That there really <laughs> is a genre of lighter reading that is still literary and smart and insightful and thoughtful and can be read in a kind of contemplative way, even while it's fun and light. So yeah. that's how I feel about Sayers. Sayers and Woodhouse are like my my go-to guys when I need a break from the heavy stuff, but I don't want my brain to turn to mush. Hmm. You know, it's yes. interesting because every summer I read a Woodhouse novel and I always begin my year in January. Well, I mean, as long as I've been consciously thinking of this, I, I always begin with a spy novel of some kind. I don't know why. It's just what I, it's just the winter and I feel like reading a spy novel. So this kind of fits that bill for me. Uh, right. Is this going to take the place of a spy novel for you, David? Lord, no. Okay. <laughs> You're still going to read a spy novel. Who's your favorite spy author? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, uh, it depends. Uh, overall, probably John Le Carre, who wrote "The Spy Who Came In From the Cold," "Tinker Tailor yeah. Soldier Spy." The Spy Who Came in, in From the Cold is one of my ten favorite books ever. Really? Um, yes. And if our listeners saw the the blog <laughs> post where Cersei folks 
put down their books that they read last year and enjoy, you will notice that that novel got mentioned multiple times yeah. by this group of people. And if our readers or listeners were wondering, that would be the influence of David Kern, really mm -hmm. just like with an evangelical zeal pushing this book on everyone. <laughs> so there's a few reasons why I love this, that book. Um, it's not very long, which I, you know, a lot of spy novels are overly long. Yes. Um, it's like it's really precise writing, uh, really thrilling, all the things that you want in a good spy novel. But it's also, you know, up there literature wise. I also really like Graham Greene, who is not typically thought of as a spy novelist. Um, but like you could a, a lot of his early stuff, I think is his early stuff is very thrillery he called them like he called them entertainments yeah i mean the third man which became a famous movie is his it was actually a screenplay and then he wrote it as a novel even the quiet american in some ways which is a about vietnam it's a war novel really it's got that mystery feel to it and huh. then um he wrote a book called the confidential agent confidential agent which is considered one of the greatest spy novels of all time uh, which you can't, I can't find it anywhere. Like it's a super hard book I to find. I have a copy of it and I got it at Goodwill. So yeah, I was going to say, usually you can only find it in thrift stores and things like that. And you know what though? I was just going to say, is I got it as part of this awesome set that has Dorothy Sayers. It has that Graham Greene novel. It's got the Maltese Falcon and the big sleep. It was like this cool, like 1950s mystery set. Oh, cool. okay. So yeah, you cannot go wrong. All of those are incredible books. So if you like uh, the Maltese Falcon and uh, mm -hmm. and the Big Sleep, Raymond Chandler wrote the Big Sleep, and then uh, Dashiell Hammett wrote the Maltese Falcon. They became great movies, but those are incredible books. And then um, oh, it's got John Buchan in there too. Yeah, it's like and a really I, nice set. I, I was gonna say if you want to go even earlier. Got the thirty nine uh, steps. The thirty nine steps, um, and, and his, uh, you know, John Buchan's books are all pretty good. Uh, people feel say, differently just, about them, but yeah, go ahead. Inject here real quick. I was some a local theater asked me to audition for the thirty nine steps mm. after being in Hamlet, and I read the play. There's a read. There's a play that was written, I think, in two thousand fourteen, updating thirty nine steps. Okay, and it made it kind of in this mad capped. Um, slapstick kind of play. Yeah, yeah. And I did not audition for it, but I'm going to go see it tonight, opening night. So it's just kind of very pertinent. That, oh, that nice. was mentioned. Ah. There. Interesting. There's a uh, there's a lot of great spy and mystery novels out there that that you know I think nowadays the 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 mass market paperback I think has made us think differently about mystery novels and and. Uh, spy novels because there's just so many um you know like even the the jason Bourne books or whatever yeah. you know you can get, get all these books mass market they've sold millions of copies and it makes us think about them differently like they're, they're not literature but the early mystery novels and the early detective novels and the early spy novels they're really very literary they're like there's a very it's more than just formula like it's a craft and the writers mm -hmm. were very gifted writers um and many of them were highly educated um, and in some cases, many of them actually were either uh, spies or like John le Carré was a spy. His name is not John le Carré in real life or like um, uh, Dashiell Hammett was part of the Pinkertons. Uh, I mentioned Ashenden in our, you know, as the book that kind of off the beaten path that I'd read in our last episode. And mom was a spy during World War One. And so a lot of these guys, these became they became famous writers, but they also have this other life that they lived. Um 
and so they have experience, but they're also highly educated, highly eloquent um, people who understood how literature worked. And it is so much more than just the formulaic stuff that it maybe is a little more pertinent now, even as there are great other great writers of that same in that. You same know, that genre. makes me think think of the parallel between what you're saying and what happened to fantasy as a genre. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Like it they always got... say, you can you can blame Tolkien for every bad novel that's been written in the last fifty years. You know. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, great art draws tons of imitation, right? And the problem is now, well, I'm not going to say it's a problem, but the thing about living in the 21st century is it's a lot easier for more people to see your bad imitations of great art. Mm-hmm. Like, it's mm-hmm. just, you know, we live in a world now where that kind of, you know, where it's easy for me to produce a piece of a poor imitation and to get a lot of people to read it. Also, we're more in, interested in entertainment now than perhaps like we're more directly and blatantly interested in entertainment above, you know, being yes, challenged or I, above quality, you know, in a way that we never would have been even a hundred years ago. You know, if you think about it, the spy novel and the fantasy novel actually have a lot in common, right? Because both of them are kind of operating under the idea that there's a whole other world going on beyond what just the normal world appears to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And it seems to me that both, um, types of books when they really excel create this foreboding sense of um, darkness all around the main character mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you never know what's going to come out of the darkness and what angle the the harm is going to come from yeah and that there's just these huge forces that you don't even know about that are really just all around you and dictating things and and they for me, t- John go ahead Dave. No, no go for it I was going to say, for me, John Le Carre is a master at that, at creating this sense of just red blackness that's constantly on the horizon, and it's like it's in every nook and cranny, and it just creates this tension. Even when there's not a great deal of action taking place, it creates this tension in the reader that makes it impossible to put the book down. Yeah, and I think in doing that like a great fantasy novel a great spy novel and especially a great mystery novel they implicit within the form itself and the way you kind of pull off that kind of a story is the idea that there is like a good guy and a bad guy there is a right and a wrong mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. if you even if you have an anti-hero which you might find in a lot of mystery stories you know especially the the quote film the like the noir star the hard boiled mm-hmm. yeah even there where you might have the anti-hero the implicit within it is the idea that there is such a thing as good and bad good and evil and that's you know a lot of these are being written in the 20s 30s 40s 50s mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at a time when that kind of ran counter to what was going on in in much of like the rest of 20th yeah. century literature absolutely so it, it, it kind of runs counter to the kafka to uh to the you know like the sart to the who you know whoever else yes. at the time yes yes These and, and sayers in particular was very deliberate about that and spoke about what she considered to be the inherent moral universe of the detective novel yeah so i mean i don't think we need to defend our choice of this but i think in a way this this kind of this little preliminary conversation here is kind of showing why we as readers you know really value these kind of stories and why we think they're worth spending you know, several weeks discussing. Um, yeah. And hopefully our readers will, will join us and our listeners rather will join us and, you know, head over to our Facebook page, the, the close reads Facebook page and join that conversation. It's been really fun seeing that so far. Oh yeah. Uh, that Facebook page is quickly turning out to be a whole lot of fun. So just, yeah, join us if you haven't already. 
one of the habits that we've stumbled on in this show is we sort of give a hermeneutical justification for the books that we read, or sometimes not even really hermeneutical. <laughs> I mean, hermeneutical in that. And we never do it on purpose. <laughs> we never do it on purpose, but it's, it's, you do, you have to get, we give an account privately between the three of us about why should we choose this book over that book over that book. And it's kind of fun to recount some of those reasons in front of listeners. Mm-hmm. We kind of uh, put an x-ray on our mental capacities or lack thereof. <laughs> or at least on the choices our, that the we choices. made. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we go uh, too much further uh, into this specific book, and we're only going to talk about chapter one today um, as far as the book itself, but we want to talk about some things related to mystery stories and related to Dorothy Sayers. Uh, if you are, you know, familiar with classical education or have been around for a while, you probably know her name in connection to the famous essay, The Lost Tools of Learning, which uh, was one of the, the kind of key documents that that kind of helped helped spur the classical renewal forward. Uh, Doug, Doug Wilson wrote about, you know, wrote a book about it, which I think it was late 80s, early 90s. And a lot of people got their hands on that and, and really, you know, responded to it um, and began to create schools and homeschools and create homeschool classically and you know a lot of the curriculum developers were highly influenced by that so that might be where you most are familiar with her name but she also was of course connected to the inklings the group with lewis and tolkien and owen barfield and charles williams and um, who am i forgetting uh you mentioned williams i mentioned williams barfield uh angelina who am i forgetting Oh yeah, I'm drawing a blank. He wasn't a core person; it was somebody kind of on the peripheral. Well, those were, those were the core guys anyway. And then she, right. you know, she was. I don't, I don't. People don't consider her a core inkling. I don't think. But well, no, because she wasn't at Oxford; she was at Cambridge. But right. um, yeah. So, but she went to school at Oxford. And so, um, she, yeah, I think she was one of the first women to get a degree from Oxford, wasn't she? She was. Uh, so she entered the university before women could get a degree, and then later on, they kind of, you know after the fact, de facto graduated all the women. So she was in that first group that got a degree. Do you know how long after she completed her work that she was granted the degree, Angelina? I I don't know. Yeah. That's a good question. So uh, during her life, she was probably most famous for her Lord Peter Whimsey mystery novels. um, Yes, but I mean, she considered her greatest work to be her scholarly work. I mean, she was just a powerhouse intellect. I mean, mean, her senior project at Oxford was her translation of the Song of Roland out of the old French, which, you know, is still in publication. And she taught herself Italian and translated Dante, which she considered to be her life's crowning achievement. Hmm. Uh, Just, you know, absurdly brilliant, a great defender of the faith, great apologist, great essayist. I mean, the mind and the maker, good Lord, you know, that. That's that's some deep thoughts to wrestle with for the rest of your life. Yeah, that's a book um, that we sell in our store and at events because uh, I think my dad would put it. It's one of the three or four most important books on education written in the 20th century. Um, and then she also wrote a book called Letters to the Diminished to a Diminished Church. Right? Was that her? Is that her? I know she's Creed or Chaos. I know she's Are Women Human? Uh, I don't. No yes, comment. Letters- Letters to the Diminished Church. I think that is her. Some of her things go by multiple names. Yeah, that's why I was a little confused there for a second. Um, yeah. yeah it was, Are you it was sure her. that's yeah. not Creed or Chaos? That's not the same, another title for Creed That or might Chaos? be, Tim. That might be. Yeah. That might, because I have an old copy of Creed or, or Chaos. It might be the same thing. Okay. 
I'm looking it up on Goodreads right now. It definitely was her. I, it just says letters to a diminished church, passionate arguments for the relevance of Christian doctrine. Yeah, she's a lot like C.S. Lewis with the essays, where the yeah. same essays will be repackaged under a million different titles. So it gets yeah. to be very hard to know if you have a full set or not. So you, you know, our listeners may have uh, discovered her in any number of ways, and for many of you, you know, Lord Peter might be where your first, you know, your first uh, introduction was to to Dorothy Sayers. Um, the first of the Lord Peter novels was published in 1923. Um, and, you know, she also worked in an ad agency, and that's kind of the segue over to the specific book that we chose. Uh, we chose Murder Must Advertise because it's um, it's one of the more popular ones, and, you know, we thought it just has an interest. It's just a fun one, so we just chose it. Um, but... In this novel, it begins, and I'll just give a little bit of this plot for the first chapter if you haven't read it yet. It begins in an ad agency, and by the time the story begins, the murder has already happened. The death. We don't know well, that it's murder. sure, sure, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> right. She always likes to start with the death in the first chapter. That's very typical of her. So it's kind of an immediate race thing. So the the person has was found David dead. David busted out a little bit of Latin. <laughs> so, so uh, that's like all I know. Uh, I'm all, I'm all <laughs> in media race. So they, uh, <laughs> so they, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. <laughs> exactly. So the the death has already happened. A man was found at the bottom of a winding staircase, um, and we're meeting a new copywriter who has been brought to this office, and the secretaries are showing him around, and he's meeting different people. Um, the person who died is named Victor Dean. If we, if we, you know, care. Now, can you tell us a little bit about her time at an advertising agency? Uh, because that was a big part of her life and obviously informs a lot of this novel. And Angelina, you know a little bit about that. So can you kind of fill us in on yeah, that? Yeah. So, okay. So, so you know, there weren't, weren't a whole lot of opportunities to, for women to earn their living by their pen. Uh, and so she took a job at an ad agency uh, and uh, was really quite good at it. So uh, Dorothy Sayers is actually the person who coined the phrase, it pays to advertise. No way. Yes, that is Dorothy Sayers. Whoa. Uh, right? She's amazing. And then some of our other listeners might uh, find it amusing that she also is the person who gave us this ad campaign, Drink Guinness, It's Good For You. <laughs> <laughs> she also did the other Guinness campaign with the toucan posters. The, I mean, those are still super popular. They sell at Target the, the, the pint beer glasses with the toucan and this slogan on them still You're for kidding. Guinness to this day. I have one. And I uh, heard the slogan there was, if he can say as you can, Guinness is good for you. How grand to be a toucan. Just think what toucan do. <laughs> Angelina, if I'm not mistaken, you and I were with some people. Let me change this a little bit. <laughs> there were some people at a bar who saw <laughs> Guinness toucan advertisements and you highlighted, whether you were present or not present, I will not comment on, that Dorothy Sayers uh, wrote taglines for the Guinness Toucan ad campaign. And I did not know that before. Yes, this is, I, I, I put this in my list of fun cocktail party conversations. Uh, <laughs> I, anytime we're in class and I think of something new, I'm like, and here, hey, did you know one of the members of Monty Python has a PhD in Chaucer? You know, I just have these little things that I throw out there. It's like the Conan uh, O'Brien one. 
Conan the Conan O'Brien one. What's Co- that? Yeah. Conan O'Brien has a master's from Harvard, and his he wrote his his thesis on Flannery O'Connor. No, stop it. Way. Yeah, that's it. true. Yeah. Can we get him on the show? I mean, we could try. I'll, I'll do my best. Call him. Yeah. Call him. I'm just and gonna let's get Terry Jones in here to talk about Chaucer while we're at it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's my that's my cool Did Dorothy Sayers thing. Billing? If Conan's <laughs> here, probably not. <laughs> just gonna be honest. So that's Dorothy Sayers in the advertising world. Um, you know, she she did it because she had to earn a living and she was good at it. Uh, and this book, of course, will explore some of what her feelings about the ad industry are. Uh, it's it's a very it's not Mad Men, right? She's taking a much more lighthearted approach to it. Uh, but uh, it's a lot of the same stuff, you know, a lot of the "Am I selling my soul" kind of thing. You know, can I comment here? Yeah, all of us. That's why you're here. Various- yeah. <laughs> no, Tim, you've had your five minutes. I've been signing it. I'm just going to steer us a little bit away from the main content of the book. Um, it's kind of reassuring, hopefully, to listeners, and it's encouraging to me, to hear that even Dorothy Sayers, even Dorothy Sayers had to do side work for an ad agency. Mm-hmm. You know? like Her writing was her side work. <laughs> no, it's true. But it's like there's so many teachers out there, and I'm, you guys have probably been in this situation before. You would love to completely devote yourself toward teaching, toward um, like dealing with literary theory, reading great books, like stepping up into the misty echelons of great literature and dwell there forever and come down three times a day to get your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But that's just not the way the life of the mind actually goes for even like Dorothy Sayers. Mm-hmm. You know, Dorothy Sayers had to kind of do grunt work. Hmm. Yeah. And, and you know that, but that life of the academic that Tolkien and Lewis had, you know, she didn't have that opportunity. Women that's weren't, true. you know, that's it's true. much later that women could become professors. And she deals with that in the novel Gaudy Night, which is all about female education. Hmm. Um, and a lot of people said, well, why don't, you know, Gaudy Night is a fan favorite. Typically, that's that's I think it's her best novel as well. I didn't want to do close reads on that because it comes at the tail end yeah. of the the Harriet Vane series. And so it wouldn't be a good starting point for us. But it's a great book um, and it do, raises a lot of questions about what does it mean to be a female intellectual and academic. And so, you know, Sayers had to do what she had to do to, to earn a living. Whereas Lewis and Tolkien, they, they were in the ivory fight, tower. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. Now. Uh, I, I read that uh, Tolkien did did read the whimsy novels and enjoyed them, but did not like Gaudy Night. Huh. And I wonder, I wonder if it's because she goes right after Oxford in that novel and about women uh. and academics and professors, and maybe maybe she stirred the old boy up. I mean, I don't know. So I don't know why he didn't like it. This is all speculation, and and but you know, I don't think there's any question that Tolkien's on the more conservative end of the spectrum about these sorts of things. Right. And he was an Oxford professor. So, so Angelina, one thing I did want to ask you about related to what you were just saying about uh, the order and why we didn't choose Gaudi Knight. Uh, now, we did get some questions, you know, saying, why did you choose? Why did you not choose the first of the Lord Peter Whimsey novels? Uh, because obviously, Murder Must Advertise is not the first. But you said that that's not a big deal. But you didn't want to choose Gaudi Knights because it falls in with a sort of a sub series within the Lord Peter Whimsey series. Can you explain that a little bit for those listeners who might, might be wondering why we chose this one and not the very first one? Um, well, okay. Oh, or like why it doesn't matter. 
It really doesn't matter what order you read them in. I read, I, I didn't even know there was an order when I first stumbled on these books. You know, I just read whatever the first one was that I found. Uh, and, and I read them all out of order the first time. And a lot, a lot of people had that experience. Um, and later on, I went through and read them in order just to see the development of the character. But it's, it's really, it's really not, a, not a big deal. I mean, you can, you can sort of figure it out. But the subset of the Harriet, what's called the Harriet Vane Mysteries, um, I, I think it's four novels and a short story, uh, I mean, there's a very particular progression of those two characters and their development and their relationship and Dorothy Sayers. So if 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 Gaudy Knight is about what does it mean to be a female academic, um, she she also deals with what does it mean to be a female intellectual who gets married? What does that mean? Oh. What does it mean for an intelligent woman to fall in love? And what does she have to sacrifice for that? And I mean, this is like ahead of your time kind of thematic stuff here. Uh and she's working out a lot of her own issues in these stories. I mean, Lord Peter Whimsey is, by her own admission, her ideal man. Everyone knows that. And Harriet Vane is Dorothy Sayers. There's no it's, she, there. She writes mystery novels. I mean, it's thinly veiled, <laughs> uh, very thinly veiled. Some people have uh, criticized it for that. Um, and so she's just exploring. You know, uh, Harriet has incredible fears of getting married and losing herself, and what would it mean? And um, and so Dorothy Sayers is exploring all of that. Now, I actually did accidentally read those out of order as well. And so it's really not the end of the world if you read them out of order. But they're best read in, in order, I, I think. Um, but Lord Peter, through the whole series, is going to go through just an incredible transformation. And um, I, I said this on the Facebook page, and I'll, and I'll say it again, that uh, just, just be kind to Lord Peter. Lord Peter is one of those characters like um, Mr. Dorsey, where – Every woman just swoons about Lord Peter, okay? But unlike Mr. Dorsey, where you have the complete Mr. Dorsey in one book, you do not have the complete Lord Peter in any one book. And so you might read one book and say, what is the fuss all about? You know, you have to take him as a whole. Cindy Rollins actually said on the Facebook page in response to, should I start at the beginning? She said, when I finish the series and I start back around, I'm always left thinking, who is this guy? <laughs> He's really? unrecognizable to her at the beginning of the series. That is how much his character develops. Hmm. Hmm. So this is it, book number eight. Um, we're, uh, we're actually uh, in between uh, Have His Carcass, which is the second of the Harriet Vane novels, and The Nine Tailors, and then Gaudy Night. So we're, we're somewhere in the middle of Lord Peter's progression. Uh, in this series. So can I, again, comment on the side here that, so Lord Peter Whimsey was Sayers' ideal man. Darcy, sorry. I was Angelina, literally going like to ask this same question. <laughs> it sounds like maybe he was your ideal man. No, maybe I, think... also. I, I need to ask Angelina this question. Tim, this, is, this might be the most important question that we have ever discussed on this show that Angelina <laughs> okay, has I'm ever had to so answer. <laughs> Who, Angelina, is more ideal for you, Darcy or Lord Peter Whimsy? Oh, that's a, that's a no-brainer, Lord Peter Whimsy. So, really? You, it's Lord Peter Whimsy. You would prefer Lord Peter to Darcy. Okay, you have to explain why. Lord Peter why. Whimsy and Harriet Vane are my all-time favorite literary couple. They dethroned Elizabeth and Darcy. Get out of here. Hmm. Why? What, what, yeah, it's just what I was going to ask. What about Lord Peter Whimsey? What does he have that Darcy doesn't have? Because, man, Darcy's got charm. just about all of it. <laughs> charm. Charm. That's he right. Well, ability you know, to dance. Okay, so Dorothy Sayers once described Lord Peter as a mix <laughs> of Fred Astaire and Bertie Wooster. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Who wouldn't fall in love with him? 
I don't know. Thank that, you. The birdie wooster part's a little troubling, but at least he dances. Um, um, well, actually, I do want to talk about the whole Woodhouse parallel because that's very deliberate in the books and is, yeah. it is a lot of fun. She, but she does she, it that she does specifically have characters reading Woodhouse. Books oh yeah, and that's that's through the whole series. There's yeah. constantly Woodhouse references. I mean, I could do an article just on all the Woodhouse references. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, what okay? So what is it about Lord Peter? Well, in Lord. So Lord Peter is just this debonair guy, and women are always falling in love with him, and he has yet to find the woman who gives him the least bit of interest, right? And then he meets this brilliant, intellectual, interesting, different woman, and he's just so taken with her, and she won't give him the time of day. And uh, he is just relentless in his pursuit of her in this really kind of safe way because he can – What's so fascinating to me about Lord Peter is that he knows how wounded Harriet is. And while mm. he's just absolutely dying to marry this woman and really Lord, I mean, so Lord Peter Wimsey gets to this point where he's like, okay, I'm going to just like have to retire if I can't marry this woman. I, I can't go on without this woman. But, but he restrains himself uh, and, and approaches her with such delicacy and understands all of the things that she's afraid of and just over the series of these books is just constantly trying to reassure her, I'm not that guy. I'm not mm. that guy. I understand what you need and I, I love you for who you are. I don't the last thing I would ever want is to turn you into someone else. I'm not gonna make you be Susie Homemaker. Um I'm I'm gonna let you be you. But she's just so afraid that because he's Lord Peter Whimsey, right? He's this bigger than life character and She's so afraid that if she were to marry him, she just she just becomes part of him and part of his world, and she would lose herself. So uh, that's what makes him so interesting to me is 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 the way that he understands what her needs are, and he's constantly reassuring her, and he's also just relentless in her pursuit. Every single day, he sends her a letter and asks her to to marry him. No, and every, no way. And every really? day she says no, and it's a telegram, or it's this, or it's that, and she's just like, "Yawn." There's my daily marriage proposal, and she says at one point something like, "This is so annoying," and he says, "Do you think it's not humiliating to me for you, for, for you to turn me down every single day?" Uh, and it's just—I mean, it's just the most amazing courtship. And then, of course, he's Lord—he's—he's—he's he's, he's sophisticated. He's funny. He's brilliant. Seriously, someone needs to do an annotated edition of this books because. Everything out of his mouth is a literary reference. Half the time it's in Latin or French. You have no idea what he's saying. I mean, I always – and so she – they have this – they have the best banter because he will, he will make an obscure allusion to a poem. She will finish it. Uh, and they just go – they go back and forth like that. Um, it's, it's a true meeting of the minds, but it's, it's also – their emotional needs are met. And uh, it's really kind of at the risk of sounding kind of cliche. It's really very modern, their relationship. And uh, – and, and it's, it's idyllic, and it's, Dorothy Sayers is, is playing out her own stuff because this was not the relationship that she had in her own life. What about it, Angelina, is modern? I thought we're talking about the 1930s and that he's – and she's marrying a member of the aristocracy, and he's saying, of course you're going to be an independent woman. Of course you're going to yeah. keep your career. Of course uh, this is who you are, as if I would expect you to be Mrs. Peter Whimsey and give all that up. That's ridiculous. I'm, a man, I'm, man, I'm man enough to have you be – who you are. I'm not so easily threatened that I would expect you to, you know, give up yeah. who you are so that I'm not threatened. This is not something that could happen in the life and times of Jane Austen, for example. Oh yeah. Right. This no, I mean, Dorsey, I mean, Dorsey's giving up plenty on his end for that world too. Yeah. 
Well, okay, before we run out of time, we need to shift gears a little bit. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about mystery stories in general and about how uh, um, Dorothy Sayers viewed them and like what some of her her philosophy of writing these mystery stories was. Uh, we used the word formula er- earlier, and oftentimes mystery stories can can kind of fall into that trap where mm. it just feels formulaic. And that's kind of the great critique of a story, right? A mystery story. When you hear someone say, oh, I didn't like that one because it was too formulaic. Um, so the great mystery stories seem to follow some sort of a formula or at least seem to play to a formula while you know, hiding it a little bit or like hiding the seams, if that makes sense. Yes. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's true that there is a way of telling a story. Like there are things that make a good mystery story work. Um, you know, the obvious one is you have to not give up too much information too soon, but you have to give up enough information for the reader to feel as if they're a part of it. And as if they know something, um, when the, another, when the... another thing that you have to do is you have to create suspicion, pointed at multiple characters typically right who's guilty who committed this crime we have reason to believe it's mr smith mrs johnson mr richards in the library with the lead pipe and yeah. <laughs> and you have to do it smarter than you know law and order where the first person they interview is never it except at the end when it's a twist and it turns out to be the first person <laughs> yeah 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 you don't want people to feel like you're tricking them like a good mystery story doesn't trick you it takes oh you and long... she would not have liked that at all right so go talk talk to us a little bit about angela you're our resident dorothy sayers or <laughs> peter whimsy scholar because you're in love with him and uh <laughs> and uh could you could you explain a little bit about what um what her thoughts were on what made a good mystery story Okay, so th- this was really interesting to me when I found out about this because it helped, it helped me to understand. I love detective stories, really, really love them. And um, so she helped to express what it is that I have a problem with about something. So she had very specific ideas about what made up a detective story as opposed to just a mystery. Mm-hmm. And she, she was the founder and one of the first presidents of the Detection Club, which okay. still exists and still has writers in it. Agatha Christie was in it at the same time as Dorothy Sayers. Now, Dorothy liked Agatha and thought she wrote real detective novels. Uh, she did not, however, think that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote detective novels. <laughs> and this really? is why. Yeah, you ready Scandalous. for this? I know, man. She's going to throw the gauntlet down right here. So for Dorothy Sayers, a true detective novel gives the reader all the information they need to solve the mystery. But Sir Arthur Conan Doyle doesn't do that because he resorts to trickery. Sherlock Holmes finds a piece of paper and, you know, in the first section and puts it in his pocket. And at the end he pulls it out and is like, and this is the clue to the whole thing. But you, the reader never knew what the piece of paper was. Interesting. So it's, it's the trick. It's the sleight of hand. So for her, a true detective story has to give you everything. So everything that, Lord, that we, Lord Peter sees, we see. Nothing is withheld from us, which, of course, requires a great deal more skill mm-hmm. to create suspense if she really is telling us everything we need to know mm-hmm. to solve the mystery. That is really – that's really – that is so much harder to do, it strikes me. You can always – hide a piece of evidence from your readership, i.e. Conan Doyle, um, and surprise and turn the entire plot 
by revealing what this piece of hidden information is. But here's but okay. it's a lot harder to give everybody everything um, and still make it opaque enough that people can't completely figure it out. Mm-hmm. Here's here's the difference. I think though, the Sherlock Holmes stories that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote are not about the mystery. They're about Sherlock Holmes. And so if you're going – Sherlock Holmes has to feel larger than life. He has to feel like he ah. can do things that you can't do. Right. And so he has to recognize things that I can't recognize because if I can recognize them and I go back and I say, well, duh, I should have recognized that all along, it's – he had – he was – Sherlock Holmes is more of a superhero than a detective. That's yeah. very interesting. And, 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 and Lord Peter Wimsey was the opposite of that, yeah. The end of the book, the result is you end a Sherlock Holmes story and you admire Arthur Conan Doyle, whereas it sounds well, like – And you admire Sherlock not, Holmes. You admire Sherlock Holmes, excuse me. Yeah. Um, where it sounds like what you're describing, Angelina, is you finish a Sayers detective novel and part of the satisfaction is that you have been working on the puzzle yourself and you either figure it out or the detective figures it out for you. But it sounds like – Part of the pleasure of reading, am I right in saying this? Part of the yes. pleasure of reading is puzzle solving. Yeah, I, I would say that's true. I mean, for Sayers, the thing about the detective novel and why she liked that form and why she thought it was inherently moral was because so – and this is why she opens the stories almost always with the death in the first chapter or the crime. Uh, because So the story begins in chaos. It begins in death, and the whole movement of the plot then is toward order, is toward uh, you know showing who the bad guy is, the restoration of justice, the restoration yeah. of order, um, and so I think I think we sort of participate in that then in a true detective novel. Yeah, so that's, yeah, yeah, that's interesting too. So, that's, yeah. huh. so sh- what, go ahead. I have go a ahead. question, David. Do, which of those two do you? Do you prefer one or the other, the kind of detective story where you get to figure it out and are thus gratified by hopefully having solved the mystery yourself? Or are you more compelled by stories, detective stories where you finish and you admire the problem who so- you admire the person who solves the problem? Um, I don't know because I've never thought about it that way. Like, I feel like, there's something this when you sit down to read like the hound of the baskervilles for example the sherlock holmes novel and then i sit down to read saint agatha christie which i read a lot of when i was younger i've not read a lot of lord peter whimsey so i'm not by any means an expert i've read in fact i've read very little i maybe i've read one um but i read probably 20 agatha christie novels at least um Mm. when i sat down to read one of her great novels versus the hound of the baskervilles there's a different spirit about them that's very true. And so it, it's a different feel. It's, it's, it's like, it, like I think we can feel this in TV, right? Or a movie. Like they can, in theory, be the same genre, but the aesthetic choices of a specific filmmaker lead to a different experience. The spirit yeah. of that, it No, different. that's very true. Sayers novels do not feel mysterious. They do not feel ominous. Huh. No, no, none of that. Lord Peter Whimsey is an amateur detective. Um, you know, he's the second son. 
the Duke of Denver is his older brother, so he's the typical second son of the aristocracy, right? I've got nothing to do, but I'm a gentleman. I can't have a job, so I'm going to have this weird hobby, which sort of embarrasses my family in that I'm an amateur sleuth. And he's got a good working relationship with the police. Um, in fact, the relationship between him and the and the sergeant and their unlikely friendship is one of the themes because there's a lot of uh, motifs about um, – you know, uh, aristocracy and the nobility and, and how different classes can interact. And she's challenging a lot of that. Uh, and, and then, you know, um, Whimsy has as his right. So his Watson is Bunter. So she takes that dynamic of Sherlock Holmes and Watson, but she combines it with Worcester and Jeeves. <laughs> and it's <laughs> fantastic because so Lord Peter Whimsy is brilliant. He's brilliant. But he plays the part of the buffoon, and that's often how he's able to sort of get information out of people. Because imagine, I mean, if you're the criminal, you would tell Bertie Worcester anything and think he was too yeah. stupid to figure it out, right? So he's he's constantly acting like Bertie Worcester, and you think Bunter is his Jeeves and is the real brains behind the operation. Then as the stories continue, you, you realize, oh, there's a real deep connection in their friendship. This is not what it looks like, and really Lord Peter Whimsy is, is brilliant, and he's not Bertie Worcester. And so there's just a lot of levels of things going on. But this book, of course, takes a different tact because this is not the amateur detective being asked to look at the case uh, as, as he would normally do. Uh, he's, are we allowed to say it, David? Yeah, go ahead. So he's he's undercover in this novel. So you got a little bit of a different twist here. So he's he's not coming in as Lord Peter and then acting incompetent so people open up to him. He's actually undercover. And so he's the new copywriter. Yeah, I mean, you figure it out pretty quick. And besides, it says it on the back of most of the copies of the book anyway. So Yes, and um, this is book eight in the series. So I immediately knew who it was because I know what Lord Peter's full name is. He's Peter Dieth Braden Whimsy. And so when he goes by Dieth Braden, you you know he's, you know it's Lord Peter. Mm-hmm. Although he makes the pun. So it's D-E-A-T-H, death. Uh, and I, I looked it up and it's supposedly pronounced Dieth. But he makes a joke in the book that most people rhyme it, rhyme it with teeth but i like to rhyme it with breath something like that you know it's interesting because we were talking you know you were talking about um the differences between holmes the holmes novels sherlock holmes novels or stories and uh and and hers where there's not lord peter's stories are not ominous you said and it strikes me that that you know there's something it feels like there's something very british about that approach Mm. Um, and how she compares her, it, like so it doesn't surprise me that she compares herself or at least draws the comparison to Woodhouse but if you look at the Amer- like at the same time when the American writers were writing the hard-boiled mm-hmm. books like The Big Sleep the books The Big Sleep is famous for having tons of loose ends in the plot like you have no yeah. idea who killed this one character and and when they asked Ray, when they were making a movie out of it the Howard Hawks was trying to figure it out. And he talked to Raymond Chandler and Raymond Chandler was like, I don't know who killed him. And uh, (laughs) so because for him, it had, it didn't matter about that. It was about atmosphere and it was about tone and all that kind of stuff. And like the plot matters, but not necessarily as much as uh, I think atmosphere is probably the best word is the, the word that he like for him, it was about atmosphere and characterization. 
I love that you said that really clear. It clarifies things in my own mind. So like Sayers and Agatha Christie, when I read them, it feels neat and orderly and clean. Huh. Yeah. Right. Huh. But Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. I mean, I feel like the universe is unraveling when I read those books. Right. Yes. It feels dirty and seedy and crowded and claustrophobic and like I can't breathe. It does not feel like. Uh, well, that, Peter so they've pulled off what they were trying to do. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And and Sayers is trying to it's the it's the opposite, right? Lord Peter Whimsey is coming in to reestablish order and the whole book is moving toward order, which is not what right. is happening in a hard boiled detective novel. Right, it, right. Doesn't it seem like this could be a comparison? A hard boiled detective story, the detective creates just a moment or a small area of clarity in a in a world that is completely murky. Ah, and it yeah. sounds like what you're describing in Sayers is it's not just a little bit of um, sense. It's almost like reestablishing a, a moral or a truthful order. Is that an overstatement? Angel? No, I think that, I think you you nailed it. I think that's exactly it. I've got to weigh in here just as a side note. Maybe my favorite book of all time is Crime and Punishment, which is a detective story. Mm-hmm. And part of the charm of it, and the charm is an understatement, <laughs> Part of the, the <laughs> such a charming little it. novel. Yeah, it's such a darling little Russian novel of, of 800 pages. Um, I read it when I need a chuckle. Yeah. <laughs> Some light summer beach reading. What's fascinating about Crime and Punishment is you know who creates, who does the murder. In fact, you're with him when he um, does the murder. Mm-hmm. The detective part the thing that needs to be discovered is internally, why did Raskolnikov create, why did he commit the murder? And so it's a psychological detective story. And it's interesting that the detective in that story, Porfiry Petrovich, kind of plays a little bit, he doesn't play a Wooster type role, but he plays like a little bit of a, um, he deliberately poses as the ignorant bumpkin who doesn't quite understand the greatness of Raskolnikov, the murderer. He doesn't quite understand. Raskolnikov, could you please explain to me your higher wisdom? And that's how he kind of unravels and gets Raskolnikov to sort of betray himself. So it's interesting that this seems to be another trope in detective stories is that the detective, Holmes might be an exception to this, oftentimes plays the ironic role of being less than he or she actually is Mm -hmm. deliberately kind of subverts his or her abilities so so that the, the criminal who thinks that he knows all um, lowers his guard. This is, well, isn't that sort of the same thing that goes on with good cop, bad cop, right? Like you, you, you try to create some instability, you throw them off and then they say more than they intend to. Yeah. So in and the what's, har- Go ahead. what's wonderful about it for, as a reader is you know that the detective is playing the role. So it creates this wonderful sense of dramatic irony. I know something that the criminal doesn't know. I know that the detective is a lot smarter than he puts on. It's really gratifying to see the detective kind of unravel the mystery or to, or to get information from the bad guys that the bad guys really think they have the capacity to hide. And unlike the Lord Peter story or, and, and until late in the Her- Hercule Poirot novels of Agatha Christie, 
part of the mystery is the detective in a lot of stories. So like in the hard boiled ones, you know, in Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, for example, uh, Philip Marlowe, the detective, is you're never exactly sure what to make of him. Mm-hmm. Like you're not really, I mean, I mentioned the anti-hero earlier, but you're not sure to what degree he is quite as either honorable or, or well-intentioned as he lets on, or maybe he's just, you know, in it for the money as a character. But, you know, there's always something pulling at him that suggests that maybe there's something more than that. And so you, you're never quite sure what to think of him. Whereas, you know, that's not quite the same with, you know, a Lord Peter. Type That's character. very true. That's mm. very true. And in the hard-boiled detective novel, and and in just the film genre in general, film noir in general, uh, you know, the 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 protagonist almost always has to somehow remove himself from the system of justice. So the cop has to go rogue. You know that idea. The, the yeah. private, the private eye. That's part of the hope. The private eye is usually like an ex-cop, or he's got some kind of bad relationship with the police. Um, maybe he's an alcoholic. Uh, you know, he's he's got to take like there's. Whereas Lord Peter Whimsey works with the police, he works through the proper channels. Uh, he has a good relationship with the police. You know, him calling Scotland Yard is a positive. Um, mm. where, whereas in these other novels, like everything is just unraveling. The police can't be trusted. They're corrupt. Everything's corrupt. The only way to get justice is to do the unjust thing. Almost. Does that make sense in the film? Yeah, it world? does. Yeah. There's almost, yeah. there's almost, it's almost hard to distinguish what is the difference between the good guy and the bad guy because they're both playing according to their own rules and their own sort of inner moral code. Yeah. And it does create this sort of this sense of moral ambiguity yes. in, in the entire plot. And I, I finish the film, excuse me, the, the, the hard-boiled detective, American detective novels I finish those, and I don't know if, how you guys feel. I always have this sense that the detective is only barely, slightly superior, yes. has a slightly firmer grasp on moral reality than does the criminal, and that's kind of the best that we can do in this life. I'm it's not a, in love with any hard-boiled detective, so there you uh-huh. go. <laughs> David, am I being unfair? I don't know. I don't think you're being unfair. I don't think that um, I, the last part of what you said that we can't do better, I think implicit in those novels is the idea that we can do better. So like why, 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 you know, the question is why is the detective the way he is? Mm. So I think that that's, that's kind of part of it. But um, since we're running out of time, I want to talk a little bit, more about something Angelina you wanted to bring up related to Dorothy Sayers approach. And you mentioned that um, there maybe is an order or a structure and, and you've, you've used the words that she has um, rules uh, to her stories. Can you talk about that? Well, I mean, the biggest rule is the one I already said, which is that you have to give the reader all of the information. So okay. when I was talking before about rules, that was, that was the big one. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I mean, there's definitely an order, um, and and the interesting thing about Dorothy Sayers' books is that uh, well, Agatha Christie. This is true about Agatha Christie too. That uh, the the death usually creates some sort of a suspicion. It breaks up a community, a family, a dinner party, whatever. Even if it's just a makeshift community, right? And so they always explore. It's very Shakespearean almost, right? That there's some disorder in the relationships, and then the movement is toward order and the restoration of the community because they're they're suspicious of one another. 
and the suspicion breaks them up. Uh, and then so then at the end when the you know when the when the the murderer is caught and and justice has been established, uh, then the community comes back together too. Okay. Huh. And so is it more so it's about more than just the resolution of the crime itself like it's about more than figuring out who done it right oh yeah oh yeah and i mean she's just filled with such uh social commentary and you know as i was like kind of making a list uh yesterday of some of the motifs in in the series of books i was struck again by really how ahead of her time she was i mean so Lord Peter Whimsey was in World War One, and he has post-traumatic stress. And in many of the books, he has breakdowns and post-traumatic episodes. I mean, this is really? seriously ahead of its time that she's dealing with the psychological effects of men from World War One. Hmm. It's actually a common theme in, uh, like, Peaky Blinders deals with that, and Selfridges deals with that. And and as I watched both of those shows in the last year, I was struck by. I remember re looking at it and thinking, you know, I'm so glad that people are finally paying attention to this very serious issue of psychological health of men who've been in wars. And I thought, wait, Dorothy Sayers did this, you know, 70 years ago. <laughs> she was, she really was ahead of her time. She also yeah. dealt with the effect of war on the gender role situation because suddenly you have all of these widowed and spinstered women. And what do we do? You know, their their fiancés were dead or whatever. And, and so what what do they do? How do, how do they make a life? What yeah. What is open to them? Um, and so Lord Peter Whimsey actually, you know, employs quite a bit, a few of them in, 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 in various ways in books. He's got his own, he uses them basically to get information and he, and he gives them jobs and he takes care of them. Um, Miss Clemson's group of women. Uh, so, you know, she's, and, and, and like I said, she deals with female education and, so she she really deals with a lot of things, and one of the it's been a long time since I've read this book, so I hope I'm not remembering this wrong. But I remember the first time I read this, just really being surprised that this particular book, Murder Must Advertise, had a little bit of a different tone than the others, and really sort of gets into some of the seedy underbelly of life in England after World War One and the nihilism and and kind of how everybody's responding. And it's very I don't know yet what to think of it, but it's interesting to me that she's gonna pair the seedy nightlife with the ad agency, right? That's what it's going to be flipping back and forth between. Hmm. Uh, and, and what does that say? You know, is it, I mean, really modern advertising was born in the 1920s. So maybe it's the yeah. same impulse after the war of, of how everybody's coping with it. Hmm. Um, and in fact, in a lot of ways, it reminded me of Evelyn Wall's bright young things, same kind of, same kind of idea, but maybe I'll think differently as we reread it, or maybe I'll see the things again. But hmm. it, it's a little bit different in tone, but it's a, it's a definitely a reader favorite. And which one did you it's say that is? Fun. This, this oh, one, this one, this one. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Just it's gonna sure. be fun. All right, well, we should wrap this up. We're hitting close to an hour of recording time here. So, um, any final thoughts before we head out? Tim? I'm just really excited to reread this. I'm excited to read it for the first time. It's always good. Have you read any Sayers? Tim? Nothing. Not even. I mean, Guinness ads. That's about it. <laughs> well, so the important stuff. Right. Yeah. I read. I read Lost Schools of Learning, um, but that doesn't really count. That's too brief to count, I suppose. Yeah. Well, technically, we'll we'll say it counts. Just you know, for the sake of for the sake of conversation. To put a feather in my cap. <laughs> uh, well, um, so this episode in theory she covered chapter one but when we get when we come back for episode two on murder must advertise let's plan to talk about uh chapter one in a little more detail but really one through four 
Uh, that gives us time okay. to read, you know, our readers at us time to read through chapter four. In my edition, that's about 68 pages. Um, but I imagine it'll be a pretty quick read for most people. Um, so that's chapters one, two, three, and four. We'll talk about in some detail um, the next time we meet, if that works for you guys. Does that work? That Perfect. works. I just feel like each episode of this podcast, I am making myself more and more vulnerable and ridiculous. So thank you for that. Wait, wait. You're what welcome. did you say that was vulnerable and ridiculous? Well, now everyone knows that I'm in love with Lord Peter Whimsey. What's that's great. All of your all of your suitors will know like what sort of criteria they what sort of internal criteria they need to have. Right. Start gonna... your collection of out of print rare books now. And they need to be <laughs> detectives. No big deal. Super smart, witty, charming. Yeah. David, they don't I necessarily th have to have a title in money. <laughs> it helps. David, I think don't for our wrong. next book, yeah. we need to choose um, a book in which the heroine is sort of our ideal type. <laughs> oh yes, let's do that, please. That's a so we have new. We now have new guiding principles for how we choose books. <laughs> yeah, let's just go through everybody we would like to imaginary date, and we'll have the next ten years of books set out. <laughs> this I, I've got to find. I got to. I'm moderately serious. I got to. We got to find out what Tim's uh, Tim's ideal type is in literature. I got to. I got to. I gotta think about that. Is it? It's just Anna Karenina, isn't it? You know, there's there is a lot of Anna Karenina that yeah, I really like. I mean, <laughs> she, she, oh man, I really like Anna Karenina. <laughs> I kind of isn't terrible. I like her more than Kitty. Well, I think thank you for saying her. that. Yes, yeah, she's way I more think, interesting. Yeah, she's much more interesting. <laughs> well, See, Dorothy Sayers would so approve because Harriet Vane is a woman with a past. Um, Anna Karenina would be a long book to do on this show. Oh my gosh. Close reads. The 2018 <laughs> episodes are all. Yeah. What well, if we could finish it? That's only 52 episodes, Tim. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sheesh. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, to everyone who's been listening, thanks so much for joining us for another episode here on Close Reads. We look forward to reading Murder Must Advertise with you. Uh, don't forget, you can. Join the conversation over on Facebook uh, at the Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group. Uh, we would love to see uh, some more of you there. There's a couple hundred so far, but if you've been listening, join us. Uh, remember that you can find Close Reads on an individual feed on Stitcher and on iTunes. So if you don't want to subscribe to the whole Cersei Podcast Network, you can just subscribe to Close Reads. And if you're going to do that, then we only request that you let people know that you're listening. If you have friends who may not necessarily be interested you know, in everything else we're doing but might like to hear a podcast on good books, please uh, share that and um, share that feed on iTunes or wherever, and, and uh, we'd love to have them join the conversation as well. So uh, that's about it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time here on Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network.